So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Caspian Podcast with me, Mark Elliott. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have Professor James Kerr-Lindsay. Um, now, with his academic hat on, uh, I, he's a visiting professor at LSE and a lot of other places. Um, but what's particularly amazing is you managed to combine that with, with a YouTube star status. And I have to say, if you haven't seen his videos on YouTube, get them. Now, what he concentrates on is new states or the foundation of states on conflicts. And they are absolutely brilliant. So if, you, if you're looking for a video that sums up in about 10 or 15 minutes the essence of a problem, that's the place to go. Now, that, enough blowing your your trumpet. Uh, welcome, James. And uh, how long have you been doing these videos? Oh, thanks so much, Mark. Um, yeah, I, I, I started, I guess, sort of coming up for about a year and a half now. Um, yeah, it was... It, I, I still don't quite know why I started, um, to, to be honest with you. But it's um, it, it's something that now now I'm doing them. I'm I'm hooked. It's a lot of work though. But um, well, yeah, I think really, yes, I think really people. Enjoyable. This is one of the things I can't believe because quite often. Uh, Something's in the news, and before I know it, you've popped up a video on it. And I, I think, well, there's so much. In, and, and for people that haven't seen your videos, it's absolutely packed with well-balanced background. So you have all these sort of um, knowledge that you need to get the background, and yet there's, there's sort of – it's really up-to-date and everything. Now, I was just also wondering, though, as an academic, I, when I did a, uh, my master's on uh, in an international relations field – there was this sort of sense that if you made things too popular or too real world, there was that was almost something bad. Now, how does that work for you as a professor and a YouTuber? Well, do you know what, Mark? That that's absolutely why um, I I was so interested in doing this because I, I remember when I was doing my postgraduate studies. I mean, there we were learning all this these these sort of theories concepts. Um, but we did remarkably little in terms of trying to apply it to what was going on at the world at the time. And, you know, I was doing my, my master's uh, in 93, 94. So this was immediate post-Cold War period. Mm. Uh, you know, there was so many interesting developments. You know, we were thinking about what the world was going to be in the future. And yet, you know, we were doing these classes and yet there was no real attempt to try and discuss what was going on and I think that's always stayed with me so although you know I have a very clear academic background I've actually done a lot of policy work over the years I've worked in think tanks as well I've worked in private consulting um, you know so I, I think this is really yeah that this is very much an offshoot of it and look I, I know some academics sort of turn their nose up at this sort of thing and you know just want to do their theoretical stuff but um you know I've, I've always felt it's incredibly important you know when talking to students and, and sort of providing that real world example and so this is just really an offshoot of that of sort of saying well look you know uh a conflict has broken out in 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 tigray in, in northern ethiopia uh what's it about but what are the historical roots of it Mm. Uh, and also what can we relate in terms of sort of broader ideas? So um, concepts of like secession or elements of international law, um, how do those relate in? But I, I do it very, very light, as you know. I mean, I don't mm. sort of go in and give a 20 minute lecture on, you know, theories of secession. I sort of just try and preface it with saying, look, when we talk about secession, this is the sort of thing that we're interested in. Um, and here's a really great real world example that's taking place at the moment that, you know, illustrates this point. Yeah. So I, I really do try and do that. And, and again, just 
one of the wonderful things you did, I think it back last year, was a sort of the top your top 20, as it were, top 20 conflicts and possible new states. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I, again, that's a really interesting thing. And I, I mean, I was astounded at some of your choices, like uh, Ambazonia. I've actually been to Bemenda in the Cameroons, which is in Ambazonia, without even realising that, that this was going to be the case. I mean, that was a few years ago. But um, now, what's interesting for us, particularly um, as with the Caspian podcast, is that several mm. of your, your top 20 do um, uh, impact our region. And one of the, the clear-cut examples which you, you pointed out was, oh, I should point out that you, you quite rightly predicted the war in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, but one of your top 20 was the, um, was the Abkhazia conflict, and you chose to look at that rather than South Ossetia. So I just, you know, can you, um, now I know you're a specialist particularly in Southeast Europe, and that you, you've uh, you've even taught in in Pristina University, if I'm right, or is that, have I got that right? Um, yes, so, yes, I so think what back I... across across the region. I, yeah, no. So you're absolutely right. Southeast Europe is my traditional area uh, that I started off in, but you know, so many of the issues there, and you know, again, it's grown out of it. But you're right. I mean, I. I I've had an interest in, in what's been going on in, in, in the Caucasus uh, precisely because of these de facto states and these breakaway territories. So what I'd be very interested is your views as a Southeast, because for me, the and we, we brought this up in another podcast, but the Kosovo seems to me an absolutely crucial moment um, for the Caucasus. And I just wondered if you, you as the Caucasus, as the, the, the sort of Southeast Asia expert, a Southeast Europe expert, sorry, uh, might I just... Mean, I did almost start off at Southeast Asia, but that's another <laughs> story for another time. But could you just like, because I think that that might be something interesting that maybe falls between the gaps here. If, you know, how how is Kosovo so important? And how, what is these sort of interlinking influences that you see? Look, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I think that that sort of that element of Kosovo is 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 very interesting and very important. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's always been played down uh, that there's a link between what happened in Kosovo at the start of 2008 when it, it, it declared independence, it unilaterally declared independence. And then what we saw that took place in Georgia in August that year. And, um, you know, policymakers have always been very clear to try and differentiate between the two. But uh, as far as Russia has been concerned, uh, it always saw a link and actually used uh, the Kosovo case very clearly to justify what it did with, with Georgia. But it, it did so in, 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 in a way that's actually really, really interesting and fascinating um, because people would say, well, if it's using the Kosovo case, why hasn't it recognized Kosovo? Well, we know that there's the quid pro quo. It's not going to recognize Kosovo unless it can get the United States to recognize Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And we know that's not going to happen. So we have a stalemate. But it actually, Moscow used a, a, a much more subtle trick in many ways of saying, um, turning the foundations of uh, law, as we understand it in Britain and the United States, as precedent. Uh, to justify its decision, uh, which which I thought was really, really quite interesting, fascinating, um, scary in a strange sort of way that it, it, it did it, um, but simply said, well, look, you've decided to do this. Uh, we don't agree with what you've done there, but you've set a precedent. And because you decided to bypass the Security Council to recognize Kosovo and whatever reasons you felt you had to do it, 
the same applies to us. And I remember really thinking quite clearly at the time and, and writing on this that I was very worried about the Kosovo precedent. Uh, not necessarily because, uh, you know, I oppose Kosovo having independence. I mean, you know, the, the reality is I, I work a lot on secessionist movements. I have a certain degree of sympathy for people who want to pursue uh, independence. Um, so that wasn't the basis of, of my, my opposition. What I really did worry about was that the move on Kosovo uh, had been snarled up in the Security Council and then Britain, France, United States said, well, OK, we are going to bypass the Security Council mm. uh, and we have our own reasons for doing it. And we're going to say this is a sui generis case in international law. It falls outside the boundaries of the usual and that justifies it. And I remember thinking at the time, this is really dangerous because this is going to open the way for all sorts of other countries around the world uh, to make the same sorts of arguments. And Russia and the Caucasus was a really obvious one. But of course, you know, we can make the argument that China could potentially do the same in, in, in various cases. Other big, big countries could do the same looking ahead into the future. So I was always really worried about it. But policymakers drew a very clear distinction between the two. Or so I thought, and that was one of the things that I found so interesting in, in, in your recent um, interview with, with Matt Breiser from the State Department, where he was quite open about discussing that they'd actually looked at the possible knock-on effect of Kosovo on the Caucasus and had essentially come to the conclusion that it would inevitably have an effect. Mm. Uh, so I'm sure your viewers can draw the, the, the you know, the implications of, of, of that thinking for themselves. But for me, um, you know, who'd spent so long looking at the uh, Kosovo and, and hearing these official policy pronouncements, I, I think I can fairly say that that was a jaw dropping moment yeah, well, when, I, when I, I heard him say it. As I think I said in that interview with, with Matt, the I had been in Brussels and we, we were attending meetings amongst people mm. concerned with the Caucasus going, well, hang on. If if we recognise Kosovo, there's bound to be a war in in, um, or at least some major geopolitical knock-on in the Caucasus, and and it's essentially, I remember it not being, will it happen? It's just, will it be Abkhazia? Will it be South Ossetia? Will it be Karabakh? It was sort of almost like, or can we just stop this nonsense? Now, what do you think? You know, okay, so that they went ahead what do you have an opinion and do and having been in kosovo you know seen from the other side was there really a, a, was it worth it <laughs> you know i i think if, if we're to be honest the knock-on effects have been notwithstanding what we're talking about on the caucasus but more broadly have probably been less than we expected but they haven't been as positive for Kosovo as I think certainly people in Kosovo would have hoped and certainly countries like Britain, France, United States would have hoped. I think their, their sense was, look, we're big players in international politics. Uh, we'll force this through. Uh, we've got just good justification in our mind. We can't see an alternative. If we try and put Kosovo back under Belgrade's rule, even under the loosest form of autonomy, the chances are it's going to lead to new conflict. And if we don't leave and we don't give Kosovo independence, then we could face very serious consequences in terms of an uprising. And that then becomes very difficult for us to explain to our populations why we intervene to help people in Kosovo, and now they're turning against us. Mm. So I think that was actually a really interesting lesson about intervention. 
Mm. Uh, you know, even if it was done for the best possible reasons, the longer term consequences of this, uh, which essentially put these countries in a position they couldn't move forward, they couldn't move back. Well, we'll create a new model. But the risk, as we've already noted, is that that then becomes a model that other countries can can adopt. Yeah. Uh, and again, to preface all of this by or postscript all of this by saying, look, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in, 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 in Belgrade. I spend a lot of time in Pristina. I understand why the Serbs feel that they were singled out on this, that um, what happened with Kosovo really isn't anything that we've seen in any other cases. But on the other hand, having spent time in Pristina, one can see that really you know, it made a lot of practical sense for Kosovo to mm. become independent. So, and, and so, you know, it's a difficult yeah. one. And I'm just thinking now, just to bring it back to the Abkhazia case, so so that those problems remain for Kosovo. Do you, would you say Abkhazia has a very much a mirror problem? Or do you, I mean, I, I was left with the idea that you were saying in, in your videos about Abkhazia that, that again, they're a little bit stuck. Um, mm. They're less stuck than Kosovo? No, I, I think more. I, I, I mean, it, it, what's been interesting is that there was, I, I think it, what we saw happen with Abkhazia and South Ossetia was fascinating. Um, and I think it actually had a very interesting knock-on effect in Crimea, potentially. I realise Crimea is a slightly different case in, 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 in a number of ways. Um, but Kosovo declared independence, was recognized by Britain, France, United States, and then most of the European Union. And then they really threw their diplomatic leverage behind trying to persuade countries to recognize. So the point that Serbia's managed to persuade a few countries to drop its recognition, it would argue that, you know, Russia also helped on that. But um, we're talking roughly around 100 countries now recognize Kosovo. Whereas with the case of Abkhazia, uh what it's five or five six or six yeah yeah yeah, yeah it, it's a bit difficult to tell was it was it vanuatu or new now <laughs> vanuatu yeah i think so yes, like, new it, it was new yeah, yeah just yeah some really really weird um and i think that was probably quite embarrassing for russia uh, because one thing we know from from recognition is that great, you know, probably the most important thing you can have if you're a breakaway territory is great power support. And this really highlights it can't get you over the line to UN membership. As we've seen, Russia and China are stopping Kosovo from joining. But you've got 100 countries that recognize the territory that had unilaterally declared independence, which in the past was a complete no, no. Mm. Um Whereas Russia's attempts to persuade countries to recognize Abkhazia turned up as a say five or six of which what two or three were South Pacific Island states. So I think that, you know, in some ways that probably helped reduce that element of the knock on mm. effect of the okay. Kosovo effect. Um, but it also, I wonder if it had an effect for example on Crimea because then it made the option of when Crimea declared independence to for Russia to recognize it and then persuade other countries to recognize it a less attractive option and Moscow instead went for a far more worrying uh, development in international law which was annexation mm. and looking at the Caucasus I mean you know this is the big question we don't quite know what's going to happen with Abkhazia I mean I think there is a general sense that it can be regarded as a de facto state but there has been a long-term assumption that essentially South Ossetia maybe the long-term Russian goal is annexation there. 
so, you know, I, I think that this, this may be a bit of a double-edged sword, this, this whole question of, of recognition and, and that it wasn't, Moscow wasn't nearly as successful in getting countries to recognise Abkhazia as it would have wanted. Now, one of the um, things in South Ossetia is the, the slightly shifting border issue. Um, and that brings us to the question of border demarcations. Now, you did, again, an, an absolutely splendid job, I thought, in your video about Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, of, of highlighting the, the, the truly crazy borders. Now, I know this is probably a bit not so much your your standard area, but, but again... Uh, I, I, you managed to wheel out one of the, the most comprehensive and, and accurate and up-to-date um, uh, reports, I thought, on that issue just days after it was happening. And I just honestly wondered, how, how do you do it? <laughs> What's your source uh, of information? How do you manage to do that? Because honestly, anyone that wants to look into that, that Tajik-Kyrgyz conflict, look at your video because that was excellent. No, sorry. Uh, Where did you get it? Thanks, no, thanks so much for um, you know for, <laughs> for bigging it up like that. I mean, do you know? I I I think it it's a combination of things. I think it's um, <clears throat> the fact that you know I have an academic research background, um, which means that um, and and also working consulting where you you you've got to work quite quickly, uh, mm. and also having a really keen interest in policy matters. Um, I think in some ways it's actually easier for me to do situations that I'm less familiar with than the ones mm. that I know a lot about, uh, yeah. because then I'm much more questioning about does this information need to be included or not, whereas with countries that I'm not very familiar about, I go in and I just sweep up and I'm pretty good now at judging what is a good source uh, and, you know, that, that's the, the academic training, if you like. It's sort of, right, OK, is this a credible source? Right, OK, I can put that in the pile uh, and then cross-checking. I love to go through old UN documents, and there are so many reports, a lot of my Africa stuff. I'm digging up documents which probably haven't been accessed for, you know, 30, 40 years. They're all online, but nobody's probably reading them. Uh, <laughs> and scouring those. And so... And I set myself a word limit and then really try and think, right, OK, as an outsider, what seems to be the important issue here uh, and piecing it together, but making sure I use really good quality sources wherever possible. So I, I think that and but it is it is working quickly, I yeah. think, is, is, is the tough thing. It's, you know, uh, over the course of a two or three days to write a script uh, can, can sometimes be quite challenging. I usually have a few tucked away. Um, in, in, in a file uh, for if something comes up that week, which means I just don't have time to write something new. Uh, no, so I, I, I do try and have a few there sort of in, in, in the sin bin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in, just for um, probably the, the, the most important thing to our, our listeners uh, is the Karabakh issue, which comes again and again and again. And so we, in a sense, I, Again, what I thought you did extremely well. You, you in twenty twenty, you gave us three different videos. And I may have there may have been more, but you gave us one in in July, sort of saying, "Hey, you think this is frozen, but be careful." Then, just as it broke out, you gave us well, basically, it, who has the right to what? And I thought that again, that was extremely balanced, which is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I've been writing about Azerbaijan for years, and however you phrase things, someone's going to think you're 
against them. But I thought you'd managed that very well. And then at the end of it, you, you sort of, well, what, what's happened? Um, which, but that, that you did in November. So just, again, you managed to get that out three days after the agreement, which was incredible. So I'm just wondering, sort of six months on from that, or eight months on yes. from that, um, what's your take now on the situation um, in Karabakh, you you know, it, we were on, we weren't quite sure what was happening. Still not quite sure. Um, but what you, what's your gut feeling um, as an observer of such things? Do you know it, it's such an interesting um, question of what what now? And and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's on my to do list. I, I'd like to do another video on it to follow up because, um, and and again, relating to the big concept issues that I, I like to do. Um, I'm fascinated with the concept of de facto state. And we thought of Nagorno-Karabakh as a de facto state. Now, people will often say, well, you know, de facto states have patrons in almost all cases. So they could actually be regarded better as a case of occupation. Mm. And, you know, that was always the standard uh, Azerbaijani argument for Nagorno-Karabakh. It's not a de facto state. It's Armenian-occupied territory. Mm -hmm. uh, we see this in Cyprus. I mean, this is very much the Greek-Cypriot line that it's not a de facto Turkish Cypriot state, it's Turkish occupied territory. Um, and so we thought of Nagorno-Karabakh as a de facto state, but of course, what is it now? Is it still a de facto state? Uh, and there's all sorts of arguments, legal arguments about, you know, a, a state is defined by having defined territory, a settled population, governance, and the ability to enter international relations. And potentially it could still do that, but it exists by grace of Russia. Mm. So I, I'm really caught on how to describe it. And I think it's going to be one of these videos I occasionally try and do where I, I actually ask people a question. Yeah. What is it? You know, what is it now? I, I, as I say, I can see both sides of the argument, but I may be leaning a bit more to thinking, I think we might now have moved into Russian protectorate territory um rather than armenian de facto state territory yes well i know Pre president ilham aliyev went on um on record as saying um nagorno karabakh no longer exists although actually historically speaking it hasn't technically existed from the azerbaijani perspective since 91 or at the end of 1990 when it was abolished um and i think but then then you have to ask the question well if it isn't, then then what are the Russians protecting? So so I think it you know and and I, I, again in one of your last videos you you pointed out that um, at the moment you know Azerbaijan sort of needs to celebrate its victory you know and and you had said that they'll be judged by how many people suffer, how many people die, and although it was a war, um, I have to say as seen from from my perspective it seemed like it was done extraordinarily well if you're going to do a war it was a fairly well-run war um and relatively minimal um uh, casualties it, it, it is that seen, seen from your point of view some do you see it like that or do you think that the, the whole idea of the war happening at all should it still have been a negotiated settlement I mean, I, you know, by inclination, I, I always believe that, you know, it's far better to have a, a negotiated settlement. But I mean, it, it really did raise a, a fascinating point because uh, we are used to the idea of negotiated settlements. But of course, sovereignty also means that, you know, these territories that break away, uh, there is always the possibility that the, the parent status, we use the term, 
um, will decide that they're just going to retake it. Mm. And I think, you know, it's fascinating to see how that works in certain circumstances and how it doesn't. So, for example, Kosovo is a really good example of Serbia saying, you know what, we've had enough with this insurgency. We're going in. We're going to try and take it uh, back and bring it back under our control. And obviously that was rejected, whereas there have been cases like this where the world essentially sits back and says, if you make this quick enough, um, we'll we'll let you just get on with it. And um in many ways, what we saw happen in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, there's two other very, very interesting cases, which I, I think draw very clear parallels. And that was uh, Sri Lanka's decision to take back, or uh, the final success in taking back the north of Sri Lanka from uh, the Tamil Tigers. Uh, and then what we saw in 1995, which is Croatia's end of Republic of Serb Krajina, which was a Serbian breakaway territory region uh, in, 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 in Croatia, um, that, that was essentially successful in the course of a few days, you know, Croat military just marched in and overthrew this attempted secession and actually led to a really massive case of ethnic cleansing in Europe, which just really isn't talked about these mm. days. Um, and so I think, when I saw this happen and, you know, I tried to say, look, ideally we want to have a peaceful settlement, but let's not kid ourselves. Countries do this and they very often get away with it. But I think the real problem and the real thing that uh, Baku has to bear in mind is that now there is a greater decision, um, a greater willingness of the international community and certainly Western countries to look at the way it was done. And, you know, as, as I said in the video, what it needs to be really careful about is if it's going to do this path, it has to be super careful that it doesn't lead to mass ethnic cleansing, let alone, you know, a, a mass slaughter of Armenians. But as long as it can do it quickly and it isn't so egregious that it forces the international community to act, I think what we actually see is that countries can very often do exactly what Azerbaijan did. Mm. And so we just really have to hope that the building of the peace uh, goes ahead. And 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 I, 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 well, let's just wish them well with that. Now, James, I'm afraid we've reached the end of our time. I, it's been absolutely delightful talking to you. I'd love to talk to you about Tokolo and um, Ambazonia and, and Biafra and all these amazing places that you bring up. But I would um, advise anyone to go on the uh, Intelligent Thinking um, website. We'll put a list, uh, a, a link to your YouTube channel in there. Um, you've been listening to uh, Mark Elliott and uh, James uh, Kerr Lindsay on the Caspian podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.